Welcome, welcome. Open up your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians. All right, we're getting ready to start here. Glad to see all you smiling faces. Oh, let me introduce you to uh, uh, a new couple that we have here today. First time ever. Um, yes, uh, Salvador and Susana Martinez. <laughs> As a couple, it is. First time ever, yeah. You know them. Uh, they just got married <laughs> this last Friday. Amen. So I want to thank you guys for being here and uh, and celebrating with us as well the Lord's Day and uh, starting off your journey uh, in the house of the Lord. Amen. All right. Praise God. Open up your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. We are now going into this portion of scripture that uh, that we've been looking at. Uh, we, we have uh, a few notes to actually go over. This is this is a very short book. You can probably read it uh, every night before you go to bed. It's um, three chapters, 47 verses, uh, 2 Thessalonians. You, you can just read right through it. And it kind of flows right with 1 Thessalonians as well. 1 Thessalonians was written from Corinth. Um, and if you remember when we started talking about this book, we said this is a model church. Paul was really proud about this church. He was really excited about the growth that was going on uh, within the church. And we're not talking about numerically, numbers. We're talking about the spiritual growth that was going on. Because uh, today we gauge a church more or less by the size of its auditorium and the size of its membership and the production of the membership, the pastor being famous, um, those types of things that make a church a church, the lights, the, the glitz and, and all those things. I'm not saying that that is all wrong or not, nothing like that. I'm just saying that that's how many people judge a church. They look at a church, they look at its facilities, they look at the, the building, they check the pastor out online, and they go all kinds of things to see, is this a good church? When they when some people come to our church, they say, well, this can't be that good of a church because it's not that many people here. And so they go to bigger churches because, well, there's more people there. And so churches are judged on certain criteria in today's culture. Is the message relevant? Are they going to be offensive? Are they going to talk down to me? Are they going to talk over my head? Is the message going to be one of you know doom and gloom, uh, of uh, you know hell, hell? What do they call that? Um, fire and brimstone, hell, fire and brimstone. Is it going to be, or is it going to be loving, encouraging? Are they going to nurture me and just kind of look over my sin and not really point that out in my life? And so th there are a lot of things that uh, that kind of gauge the church. Some people come to a church because it is, or they go to a church because it is very uh, relevant. Uh, it's, it includes everyone. We're not excluding anyone. You know, anyone can come. It's very, well, as some people call it, very woke. In other words, so they're, they're concerned about social issues. They're concerned about political issues. And so some people go to these churches that really are drawn to those types of social, political concerns in their uh, communities. And so various criteria to judge a church. And Paul today is going to show us a, a few things that he was really excited about this church. This is the series is called A Church to be Commended, a commendable church. Uh, the, the, the first book that we went, it was a model church. It was growing. Remember, um, if you turn with me to Acts chapter 17, we will uh, kind of look a little bit at um, how this church had started. In Acts 17, Paul is going through, of course, all of Asia Minor. He's going around Greece and all those places, and he's looking at starting churches. And what he does, as always, he goes into the synagogue and he starts showing people. Well, let me show you right here what's going to happen. He starts showing people through the scriptures why the Christ was Jesus Christ, was Jesus. Remember, Jesus is his only name. Christ is his title. It's not like he has a first and last name, Jesus Christ. You couldn't go into the 
into the phone book and look for Jesus under Christ, Christ, you know. No, that wasn't his last name. Christ was his title. Christ means anointed one. In Hebrew, it was Messiah, the anointed one. Christ, the anointed one. And so he, he says here in chapter 17, actually Luke is the one writing here. He says, now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Uh, and Paul went in as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. Now, let me pause right there. This, these three Sabbaths that he went in, we don't know if it was concurrently, one after the other, uh, or if it was, you know, once a month. But in Paul's uh, defense and in, in his zeal, he was there as often as he could be. I truly believe that he was there one Saturday, the next Saturday, and the next Saturday. Now, because of this short stay, it seems like most people believe that Paul was only there for just a short time. Until, as we see in verse 3, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. And saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, uh, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. Silas was Silvanius, which we'll see in just a bit. That was his Greek name. And he also had a, a Jewish name. Verse 5, but the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble. They formed a mob, set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged out Jason. Poor Jason. <laughs> they just picked on him. And uh, some of the brothers before the city authorities shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them and they, they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar saying that there is another king, Jesus, and the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue again. So they went into the city called Thessalonica. Paul and Silas and Timothy was with them as well, but he's not mentioned here. And, and what, they're, what they're doing is they're proclaiming, according to the scriptures, this is what the Christ had to do. Remember, after the resurrection, Jesus was, uh, showed himself. Actually, he didn't show himself, but he appeared to these two men that were on the way to Emmaus. And on the way to Emmaus, these two men were downcasted because it was the first day of the week. It was late at night, uh, or late in the afternoon, I should say. And they were discussing among themselves, and this stranger comes up to them and says, what are you guys talking about? Oh, about what happened in Jerusalem. What happened in Jerusalem? He says, what, are you the only one? In, were you living under a rock? Were you in a cave or something? He probably said, yeah, kind of. I was in a tomb, but that's besides the point. Uh, you know, he said, they said, haven't you heard? What? And they started to tell them on how their people murdered Jesus Christ, and they made him suffer. And, and Jesus says to them, and they don't know it's Jesus, oh, ye of little faith, didn't you know, according to the scriptures, that the Christ had to suffer these many things and beginning with Moses and the prophets and the writings he explained to them all of the gospel of God and the gospel of God has been proclaimed from the very beginning and they didn't have the Roman road or they didn't have the New Testament they didn't have the four spiritual laws they didn't have any of these things that many of us have today what they had were the gospels now the people that Paul would talk to were very religious in a sense they were very religious and they were very you know understanding of the things of God but they just didn't didn't put the two together and the people that did start putting two and two together they realized wow this Jesus that was crucified that was him but the other Jews, they didn't like this effect of what was going on. They started to lose control. 
Their political clout was being, you know, was being pushed and, and their, their prominence and all the monies that were coming into them was now no, no longer going to them. And so they raised up this revel, they raised up this mob, and they said, they're talking against Caesar. They're saying there's another king, which is not what they were saying, but they were saying that Jesus is king, but not that he was another political king or president. And so what they did is they started to beat them up and send them out. And Paul and Silas and Timothy fled at night. So when Paul goes to, to Berea, then he goes to Corinth. Corinth was a very ugly church. It was just a church... In confusion, spiritual gifts was the thing that confused the whole church. And people were doing this and shouting that and doing all kinds of things. And, and everybody thought they were from this one group. There was all kinds of divisions and factions. And there was immorality going on in the church. This is the church that had a son sleeping with his father's wife. And Paul says to them, you know, and you guys are proud. Way to go, guy. Yeah, you got it, you know. And, and Paul says, Paul, you guys are proud. I mean, you know, he wasn't disgusted about the sin, which it, he was inevitably, but he was really more disgusted at the church for allowing something like this to happen. And he goes, I can't believe you guys, are, get, get rid of that guy. You know, and, and Paul says very something that we have to really pay attention to and look at. Paul says, you know, you, who are you to judge those outside of the church? Are we not to judge those inside the church, Paul says? Judge those within and let God take care of those that are without. And, and get rid of this guy because he's contaminating the church. When people tell you, he says, you're not supposed to judge. You know, and it, it shuts Christians up right away. As a matter of fact, they even quote the scripture, judge not lest ye be judged, you know that. And you ask them, well, where do you find that at? Well, it's in the Bible somewhere. You know, it's, I, I know, that, I know that's, that's the one verse the whole world knows, <laughs> right? All of non, non-believers and believers as well. Judge not lest you be judged, you know that. And it shuts most people up. But Paul tells us, aren't you supposed to judge? If you are a believer, if you state to be a believer, I'm going to hold you accountable as a believer. And if you come to me and you say, are you judging me? Why? Are you feeling judged? <laughs> is, that, is your judgment coming upon you? Because all I'm doing you is showing you your sin. This is what's going on in your life. If you are a believer, this ought to appall you. You should be disgusted at the fact that this is what you're doing within the church. Because God didn't send Jesus Christ to die on a cross just so you can continue on in your sin. It's like a dog returning to his vomit. And so as Paul is sharing these things with the people in Thessalonica, the church gets uh, turned upside down because the people didn't like what he was doing. People were coming to Jesus Christ and they, he leaves in a hurry. He writes to them out of Corinth and, and in Corinth he says, you know, I, I don't know what happened. They didn't have, you know, Facebook or, you know, TikTok to see, you know, all the good things that are going on within the church of baptisms and all that other stuff. And Paul says, I, I don't know what's going on. I'm going to write them a letter. And actually what he did is he sent Timothy and Silas to go check, go check on them. Kind of go in there covertly, be, be careful not to get beat up again, and just go check on them. And they came back with this news, man, they're growing, they're developing, they're, they're praying, they're going out with the gospel. Paul was just amazed. Was, wow. And I only spent three weeks with them, three months with them, if that. Three times that I was able to meet with them, and day after day after day, I was able to disciple them and, and taught them. And they were just on fire for Jesus in spite of all the persecution that was going on. And so when we talk about a model church, this wasn't a big church. This wasn't a politically correct church. This wasn't a real 
you know, bunch of people coming in, service after service after service. These were a group of people that had committed their life to Christ. And there is four characteristics of this church, which I'm going to go over here in just a little bit. But the four characteristics of this booming church was their genuine conversion, conversion, their abounding faith, their uh, increasing love, and their persevering hope. And I'm going to go over those again in just a bit. But let me read out of 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. And uh, now, Second Thessalonians chapter 1, I'm going to read the first four verses. And it says like this, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church at Thess- of the Thessalonians and God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Father in heaven, thank you once again. Father, this church that Paul just commended and spoke to many other churches about this little church. He loved this church because they were just growing and abounding in their love and faith and hope and perseverance. And, and, and Lord, they were just uh, understanding what the gospel message meant in spite of all the persecution, in spite of all the afflictions that they may have been enduring. So Lord, help us to learn from this commendable church. Help us to learn to be able to be in the same mindset, at least, if not in the same league. But we thank you, Lord, for all that you do. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone says, amen. This church, number one, as I said, had a genuine conversion. Genuine conversion. There was, you can see, you not only had to wait for them to tell you, you didn't have to try to figure out, you know, are these guys saved or not? You know, because they do good at church, but eh, I don't know about their lifestyle. I told you the story before, and I'll say it again. I went to go pick up some materials over at Glen, Glen Helen because we were using them for an event that we had here. I had a truck and a trailer, and I loaded it all up, and I went out there. And the guys asked me, so what are you guys doing? So we're going to do something at our church. Oh, really? He says, I, I go to church, too. And his coworker looks at him, and he says, you go to church? <laughs> and I go, brother, that's not a really good sign, you know, for somebody to say that to you. You know, there needs to be some sort of a, a, a difference. Not saying that you're perfect, holier than thou, that you walk around with your hands, you know, clapped together and go just praying and floating above the ground. You know, you got this halo over your head. There needs to be something different. Your language, your speech, everything about you should be different. Paul says you, you, you have this genuine conversion. The key word here is the key word in, emphasizing that the believer's eternal life was with God and the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to say, he says... Uh, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of Thessalonica, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, I know that you're in God. I know that you are in the Holy Spirit. I know that you have been given this this gift. If you look at uh, the next verse in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. We know that God chose you. There's just no doubt about your life. In what Timothy and Silvanus is telling me about what you guys are doing, how you guys are just proclaiming, and, and they're still persecuting you. You know, they were lying to the people there. They're saying, you know, this guy was, these guys are trying to, 
create a whole different uh, kingdom, a whole different political system. They're getting rid of Caesar. They're putting in, they're installing this new Jesus. We don't even know who this Jesus is. And so everybody that was named Jesus, they would go out and persecute him. Jason was one that they beat up. And so they were trying to raise the whole city up against this cult, I guess they would say, this group of people, the followers of the way is what they were called. They were, they were the disciples of Jesus Christ. And in Antioch, they were first called Christians. These little Christs, these people that were, were trying to be and emulate Jesus Christ. And so as he's talking to them, he says, you know, but we know. He tells them this in 1 Thessalonians, and he's saying it again. We know that you are in Christ. Uh, God, our Father, we're united together. And you can see the conversion. You can see what's been going on. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, in your outlines, a lot of people proclaim and say that they want to be get baptized by the Spirit, that the that this Holy Spirit baptize you so that you can receive these gifts. But the Bible never says that. What the Bible says is that for in one spirit, we are all baptized into the body of Jesus Christ. What the Holy Spirit does is he baptizes you into the body, his Jesus, his body, which is the church. And he baptizes you into the body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, doesn't matter who you are. If you're, if you're converted, if you're regenerated, then you become into, you come into the body of Christ and all were made to drink of the same spirit. In second Peter one through four, he says, by which we, he has granted us his precious and very great promises. And this is in your outlines so that through them, you may become partakers of the divine nature. You become partakers of God's divine nature. And this is very strange for any religious group to say this because in that same day and age as today, you don't become a part of that nature. You, you see these gods, they saw their deities way above and, and nobody can get close to them and you had to do what they said you needed to do. Genuine conversion comes at a point when you recognize how sinful you are. When you recognize there's something bad about me and I know that at one point or somewhere, God is going to have to deal with that. We recognize God's holiness. We recognize that he is holy and pure and I cannot measure up to him as much as I try. I remember before I became a Christian at the age of 30, I was, I was into really, I, I wasn't even a Catholic. People would look at me and says, you're not Catholic? says, no, I thought you were Mexican. I thought all Mexicans were Catholic. It's not, not this one. I never was. Um, you, you know, if anything, I might have been Jehovah's Witness. But I had fallen away from all the faiths, and I was looking for some sort of spiritualism is what I was looking for. And I got into nature worship. And I would go up into the mountains of Yosemite, the mountains, the lakes, and, and just kind of worship the ground and worship the, the, the ocean and the lakes and the trees and talk to them. And they would talk back to me, I thought, or maybe they were. I don't know what, the, what demonic influence was going on. You know, I, I was, that, all that is kind of a buzz, I mean a haze, that's another part of my life. Anyways, you know, and, and I was so into it, yeah, you know, and, and it was cool and it was, you know, refreshing because I'd go away for the weekend and with people and myself and it was just, that's just the way I thought, you know, I can find the universe, see what the universe has to say to my spirit, my soul. And, you know, don't, don't get, don't be fooled by other people's thought process, just because they're not Christians or just because they don't want to go to church, most people are religious, okay? They're spiritual in some sense. Most people are very spiritual, but Christianity is not part of it. You know, I don't want that part. It's too rigid. It's too, whatever. Anyways, and so one day, you know, I came to a point where, man, you know, I'm just, you know, drugs, alcohol, everything else. I just couldn't handle it anymore. And I saw my kids growing up. I says, I got, I got to do something. You know, I got to take care of things. 
Something's got something's to give. And so I, I go to this church, this little Baptist church. It wasn't little. It was a pretty good-sized church. And, and I went and I talked to the pastor. I says, you know what? I want you to, you know, I'm not Catholic, so I want you to dedicate my children to the Lord. And he says, why, why do you want to do that? Because I, I don't want them going to hell. He says, what about you? <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> you don't know the things I've done. You don't see the places I've been. You know, I've seen a lot of stuff. And, and you know what, Pastor? It's too late for me. And that's when he shared the gospel of Christ with me. You see, you have to come to a place in your life where you recognize that what you do is not enough. You need a savior. And you know, at that point in time, I knew that I was done. I was done. And my dad died at the age of 30. I thought, you know, I'm going to die at the age of 30. And so, you know, let me get this taken care of beforehand, set up some insurance and other things. And because I'm, I'm out of here, I know it. And uh, that's, when the, that's when the pastor shared the, the irresistible grace of God. So let me tell you about what Jesus Christ did for you. He died on the cross for you to forgive your sin. You know, pastor, I, you, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You confess to God, not to me. You don't need, a, you don't need a, a priest. You confess to God and you commit your life to Jesus Christ and serve him and serve him only. And all is forgiven. And just like that? And he says, yeah, just like that. I said, well, I mean... It, I couldn't believe it. My, both my wife were there. My, my, my wife and I were there, and we bowed our knees and we committed our life to Christ. And from that point forward, we didn't start serving Jesus Christ. And and I, I am still amazed as as to why why God would even you know choose me. You know why why me? And and God says, well, first of all, because you know I chose you from the very beginning, from the foundations of the world, first and foremost. See, if I'd have waited until right now, I wouldn't have chosen you. <laughs> Not that one. He had, he had to have chosen me from the foundations of the world. No, he didn't say that. He did so because of his grace. His amazing grace. Not because we're going through the study, uh, the, um, the doctrines of grace, and we're going to the second point, which is unconditional election. There are no conditions. There's nothing that you can do. Nothing that you had that's been done. God elects his, his chosen ones. He just chooses them. And nothing because of what I've done. Now, I did commit my life to Christ. I did say a prayer. I came forward and all those other things. But that's not why I got saved. I got saved because God saved me. Nothing. The only thing I brought to my salvation was my sin. Have mercy on me, God. Have mercy upon me. I am a sinner. I am undone. I live. Um, I have unclean lips. And I live amongst the people of unclean lips. Depart from me, as Peter would say, for I am a sinner. And, and, my, and my life has always been reflected of, I know that I'm not worthy. I know that I'm not. And, and whoever wants to say, well, you think you're all perfect and all goody two No, I'm not. Please. I've never said that. I'll say it publicly. I am a sinner. And I need saving grace every day. I need the grace of God. Because I cannot save myself. And because of his grace, it sustains me, which we're going to get into. And this, this saving grace should change you and, and work in you. And You never get to an, a destination. It's a journey that we're on. And God is working his salvation through you. And you are to work out your salvation with fear and trembling as well. And you ought to pray like with God and say uh, in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You know, the, the problem with this is a lot of people say, well, I don't want to give up that kind of control. This is my life. 
I don't want to have somebody else live my life for me. I don't want to have to crucify myself. I don't want to have to live the life, not that I want, that Christ wants me to live. I want to live my life. You see, people sometimes, and this is what I used to say, I'm not going to choose anything. I'm just going to be in the middle of the road and kind of, I know that there's a God and maybe he's in the trees and whatever the case may be. And, and you know, beloved, there's only two. There's only two. Google might tell you there's 3,500 religions, but there's only two. It's either God or Satan. Either you're a saint or you're an ain't. That's all there is to it. You're either in or you're out. There's no back and forth. See, out of this understanding, out of this union that we have, Paul says, grace and peace. Those two wonderful words sum up the gospel message. Grace is God's unmerited favor to the sinner. You don't deserve it. That's why he gives it. That's why it's called grace. Grace is not deserved. Grace cannot be earned. Grace cannot be bought. You can't pay for it. You can't do it. It is just given. That's why it's called grace. Mercy is just not giving you what you deserve. But grace is giving you something you really don't deserve. Undeserving. Life eternal. And because you have this grace, Paul says, well, you have grace and peace. (laughs) It just comes hand in hand. And, uh, it, and, and so in, in 2 Thessalonians, what, what Paul had said, he, he pretty much gave them, you know, in 2 Thessalonians 2.13, we'll find out. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through the sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this He has called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, we're wondering a lot of times and and, uh, people are saying, why don't they get it? How come they don't see it? Why is it that it seems like, you know, you just got to just show them. We show them and it just just goes right over their head. It's not there yet. For some, it hasn't happened. God has to wake them up. It took me a long time. It took me, I I went to church when I was a kid and I ran away from it. And then I heard some gospel message. People would come with me with the gospel all the time. I said, you know what? I'm having too much fun. You know, I, I don't want to commit my life to that kind of stuff. You know, if I was really having that much fun, I'd have stayed there, to be honest with you. But you know what? I knew I was a wretched, pitiful sinner, as I am still. And God showed His amazing grace, and I told the pastor, okay, if that's the deal, man, I'll do it. And the pastor prayed that prayer for us, and we did. You see, what's going to happen here is one day, all our good works, all our attendance in church, all the speaking about Jesus, all the things that we do. We're going to go to heaven and God's going to say, depart from me for I never knew you. Oh, wait a minute. Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we, didn't, didn't we go to missionary trips? Didn't we feed the poor? Didn't we do a lot of stuff? And what Jesus is going to say, not everyone who says to me, Lord, we're into the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. To do the will of the Father. And if either you obey God or you obey Satan. You're either a slave to sin or you're a slave to righteousness. There is no middle ground. I don't care how much people tell you that there is, there is no middle ground. Number two, a a church, a model church uh, is is a church to be proud of. A commendable church is uh, is abounding in faith. Look at verses 3. It says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly. It's growing, I mean, it's just not. Faith 
faith is not is gonna is like a muscle. You gotta exercise it. And you cannot exercise faith unless you go through some, you know, through the desert storms. You know, it's it's nice to praise God and to honor him and to worship him. Blessed be the name of the Lord our God. Blessed be your name when the sun's coming down on me. Blessed be your name when everything seems to be as it should be. But we need to learn how to bless God when we're walking through the desert places, when we're walking through the, the hardest parts of our life. And a lot of times God brings these things into our life to strengthen our faith, to test our faith, as a matter of fact. And when Paul was saying that he was excited about their faith, it was growing, it was developing. Again, in 1 Thessalonians, we go back to verse 3, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul said that at the first, first book, and a few months later, most people believe it was probably six months at the most that he wrote this second letter and sent it back to them. Because he, he heard some things that were going on. Some of the things that were still happening there, he wanted to incur. We'll find out on what that is here in just a bit as the weeks come along. Timothy's report revealed that Paul's prayer for the Thessalonians was started, to, started to grow and started to be answered. Their faith was growing. In chapter 3 of 1 Thessalonians, uh, Paul says this in verse 2, And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith. They were going through persecution. They were going through trials. They were going through afflictions. And so Paul sends Timothy, go, go, go encourage them. You know, thank you for letting me know. Go talk to them. Go encourage them. Let them know that this is not the end, that they're, they're needing, they're need to, they need to go through these certain uh, tribulations. Chapter 3, verse 6, he says, But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. Their faith had grown. They saw what they did to Paul. They heard what they were doing to Paul, and their faith continued to grow. And, and not only despite the persecution they were undergoing, but also because of the persecution. Persecution always destroys the false faith within the congregation. Let me say that again. Persecution increases your chosen, God's chosen ones, increases their faith, but it destroys the false faith that's within the congregation. I don't know if you've ever seen that before, but you'll see people just collapse under some of the, some of the things that go on in life. And not, not to belittle what you're going through. You know, some of you are going through some tremendous uh, things in life. There are things that, that are being thrown at you. And if you're a believer, if you're chosen, if God has, God has sealed you, if you're regenerated and you're growing in God's word and you're getting closer to God's word, God is going to test your faith in order for your faith to grow because more persecution is on its way. But if these things seem to fold you up, you know what? Forget it. You know, I, I don't want anything to do with this. It's kind of like the seed that is scattered abroad and lands into the rocky soil. And the thorns and the thorns and the worries and the distresses of this world just choke out that seed. But see, if you're being thrown, if you got seed thrown into the good soil, it's going to grow abundantly. Paul was excited about their abundant faith. He says, it is growing. I'm excited. Your faith is growing abundantly. Timothy has told me the things that you guys are enduring and praise God because it grows and it continues to grow. True faith is indestructible. True faith is, you cannot destroy it. You cannot get rid of it. Genuine true faith grows in persecution every single time. As a matter of fact, Paul told, um, excuse me, Jesus told Simon Peter to Simon, Simon, behold, 
Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. And then again, in Luke 22, Jesus says to him in in verse 32, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Did you know that Jesus is praying for you? If you're his, he doesn't want you to fail. If you're his, he's going to encourage you. If you're his, he's going to do everything he can to lift you up and he's going to pray for you so that your faith does not fail. When you stand firm, knowing, knowing that God has got your back, he's going to make your faith to grow stronger. The last song that we sang, It Is Well With My Soul, Horatio Spatz, you may have heard this story before. But he lost everything in the Chicago fires back, you know, in the 1800s. And as he was going, uh, as he was sending his family over to, back to England, to, and he says, you know what, go back. I'm going to take care of some affairs here. I'll follow in, in the next month or so, you know, after I get everything done. And on the way over to England, that, that liner, ocean liner, uh, collided with a, a tanker. And everybody was, was killed except for a few people. And there were just a few people that survived. One of them was Horatio's uh, wife. But the children all died, all his kids. And he was just heartbroken. He got on the next ocean liner and on the way back, the the captain of that ship stopped more or less where the ships had collided and they threw a reef over and they prayed a prayer. And that was when Horatio Spatz says, you know, those those sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever the cost, I have learned to say that it is well, it, it is well with my soul. I don't know how I would respond to something like that, but I would like to believe that my faith would grow in a situation like this. I would like to believe that, that because of God's sustaining grace, that he would give me the energy and the power to stand up and say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Story goes on to say that they had more children. Two other kids died and they had you know, many kids and he prospered even more so. But his faith was not shaken. You know, and it's amazing and how it seems to be that uh, one negative word from a church member, uh, you know, you, you know, it takes about almost 100 gallons, 150 gallons to baptize somebody, but, it, but, you know, to get them all wet for Jesus. But it only takes four drops of rain to keep people at home. Oh, it's rainy. I'm going to get wet. <laughs> you, you know, it, it's, it's amazing and how, what it takes to discourage people that claim to be believers. It's amazing on what, what would happen. And if you're a genuine believer, your faith should grow. Now, again, I know that some of you have gone through some stuff and continue to go through some stuff. And it'll hurt. And it'll hurt but, but your faith, and this is what I see, and those of you that I know well, I see your faith growing. Yes, uh, you know, in 1 Peter chapter 1, Verses 6 and 7, Peter learned this lesson. You know, Peter was very abrupt. He was brash. He was loud. He was a liar. He was, yeah, you know, I'll do it, Jesus. I'll do whatever. Whatever you say, I will never forsake you. Peter, you're going to deny me three times. I will, I will die with you. Rooster crowed the third time. And what happened? Oh, man, I blew it. Man, I blew it. And he blew it so bad. And so did Judas. Judas blew it so bad. He went out and hung himself. Peter went out and wept. And he was alone all that Friday night. The whole next Saturday, on the first day of the week, Jesus resurrected and he told the women, go and tell my disciples that I have risen. And then he adds this, and tell Peter. Tell Peter. Tell Peter that that he was able to withstand. And the faith that I wanted him to hold on to was during this time, 
that seemed like an eternity for Peter. And, and because of this and because of how he grew out of all this, and, and then later he writes two, two epistles and he says this in, in chapter 1, verse 6 and 7, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes through it, is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, you will go through trials. You will go through these things that you're going through in life. You have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith can be revealed to Jesus Christ that is coming. See, God allows you to go through these things so that your faith that you say you have can be tested. Now, some of you are thinking, that's just not right. Well, what is faith anyways? You know, turn with me to, uh, to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11. It's, it's after Thessalonians. Uh, you know, it's after Timothy and Titus. But go to, go to chapter 11 of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11. <clears throat> and if you're using one of the Pew Bibles, it's on page 1007. Help you out a little bit there. Because the writer to the Hebrews, we don't know who it is. Some people say it's Paul. Some people say it's somebody else. He defines faith. He says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Now remember, hope is not a I wish kind of thing. Hope is not, you know, I, I, you know, I hope this happens type of thing. Hope in the Bible is an expectation. I am expecting this to happen. See, I can't see it. The things now faith is the assurance of these things that I'm I'm I know are going to happen, and it's the conviction of things not seen. I can't see Jesus Christ right now coming from heaven to earth to take, but but I have this expectation, and so faith is having this expectation, this hope, and this assurance, and it's and also have this conviction that it's going to happen. And it's interesting because right after this, the writer says, for by, for by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. We, we, we just take it by faith that God created the universe. You know, it's, it's interesting that the other group, they have to take it by faith that it was caused by a big bang or something. Some, some, something caused it, and, uh, and they take it by faith, that, you know, because they weren't there. Oh, you know, we have all kinds of empirical evidence. No, you don't. You're making that evidence up. You know, and, and so they have this, they, they're using faith to say that this is how it happened. Well, I would rather say that God did it. I didn't come from monkeys. Maybe they did. I don't know. <laughs> by faith, Abel, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his faith. And though, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found, because God had taken him up. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. I want you to underline that verse in your Bibles, by the way, because we're going to come back to it when we talk about the rapture again. People say, well, the word rapture is not in there. It happens all the time. Here's one time when he was, what? Harpazo, taken up. He was taken up. And, uh, and if you know anything about Enoch, Enoch walked with God, and then Enoch was not. And, that's, and I don't want to be a cosmonaut, 
I don't want to be an astronaut. I want to be a was not. That's what I want to be. I was not here no more. Anyways, uh, verse 6, And without faith it is impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. By faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness that comes by faith. And on and on, this is a hallmark of the faithful. And, uh, and then if you go all the way to verse 32, I'd like for you to read this. Um, in verse 32, he, he goes on to say, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weaknesses, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by the resurrection. Some were tortured. Some, some were tortured. Now look at this. Now, the writer is saying, yeah, I wish I had time to tell you something about all these people, but I want you to know something. Some of the faithful, yeah, we, we, we don't even know some of these guys' name. He says, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. You see, we, we see that many people want to be prophets. They want to be apostles. They want to be pastors because of all the glitz and glamour and glory that they get. They want to be this, the servant of God because they believe they'll get all the accolades. But, but beloved, a faithful church, a church to be commended, does not have that. I mean, they might, but they should be humbled at the fact that they, they have received it, not glory and bask in it and tell everybody else, if you do like I did, you can have the same thing. Because some of the beloveds, some of the beloved believers in that time, and even now, we don't know anything about them except for what the Bible says of what they went through. And when you go through things, the Bible, what it does is it tells us that it strengthens our faith is what Peter said. Number three, a commendable church is one that has increasing love. Has increasing love. And he goes on to say, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. That's Verse 3, and Paul was constantly telling people, have your love increase, let your love increase, grow and grow and grow in your love, love for one another. Yes, have faith. Yes, have hope. But you got to love the brethren. You have to love them. Why? Because sometimes they're a little bit unlovable. <laughs> sometimes it's a little bit difficult to love, right? Are you there? <laughs> Amen. You know anybody that's unlovable? Anybody? <laughs> you know one. <laughs> Well, thank God I don't know too many. <laughs> he points to himself, he says. I can see why you don't love yourself. You like the eagles. <laughs> That's okay. I like the chargers. Yeah, I like the chargers, so. I'm sorry, brother. <laughs> 
Paul says, you got to learn how to love them. And he says, you know what? But your love for one another, I'm hearing this all over the place. When Timothy and Silas went to go visit you guys, you guys are just, you know, growing in your love. You loved him. And you loved him and you, you fed him and took care of him. But he's seen this amongst yourselves. He sees that. I think one of the things that has stood out within our church, people say this a lot about our church. You guys really love each other. I can see that. There is this love. There is this, and it's not fake. You can't make this up. And it's, it, it, it's, it's organic. It happens because Jesus Christ loved us. We recognize that we are sinners and we're thankful for the grace of God. And we're thankful that you're here, that you've also recognized that. And we want to love you and we want to take care of you. We want to help you and we want to help you grow. And I see that a lot. This is a lovable church. I've said this stuff, few people. Well, you know, because they're looking for churches. And some people this is a real lovable church. I said, well, that's the way most churches should be. They shake their heads. I go, well, what do you mean? He says, yeah, well, probably in other cities. No, just around the corner, not too far from here. Who? He's like, no, never mind. I don't want to know. You know, I'm just glad that you're here. Because, yeah, love is, should be one of the things that we grow in. And it does hurt, by the way. Sometimes there are things because of love that we say and we do. In 1 Thessalonians 4.9, we saw this. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. Over and over again, he's continually telling them to do this more and more, to love one another. In uh, 1 Thessalonians 3.12, he says, And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you. And, and this, is, this is not just something that Paul was teaching, but Paul was taught this by Jesus Christ himself. If you look at your outlines again, in John 13, he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. It's interesting, Jesus said, by this, all people will know that you're Christians. He didn't say that. By this, all people will know that you go to church. No, he said, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples when you love one another. It's, it's, it always amazes me on how people talk bad about their, their churches, their pastors, their, the leaders, the people of the church, and how they denigrate them. You see, Jesus Christ died on the cross, and no greater love has this than a man lay down his life for his brother. And that's what Jesus did. He showed it. Not only did he teach it, but he expressed it and he, he showed it over and over again. In 1 John 2.10, it says, Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. 2 Corinthians 8.7 in your outlines. But as you excel in everything, Paul says, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. What he was talking about is excel in love, grow in love, and continue to grow. And in Matthew 24, this is something that Jesus even taught that was going to happen at the end time. Why is, why is Paul telling us to increase in our love? Because he says, Jesus said this in Matthew 24, and because of lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. And that's how you know the difference between a genuine believer and one that is not, that the love grows cold. But genuine love, Jesus said, let it grow, continue to grow, because it's going to grow cold eventually. 
around you and people are not going to want to love you, but you continue to love. The last thing I want to share with you is persevering hope. Paul goes on to say, going back to the afflictions. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Right now, there are people in Libya. There's a young man that is being, uh, well, he's going to be hung if he hasn't been hung by now because of his faith in Jesus Christ. Right now, in many parts of the world, Christians are being rounded up and caged. Right now, they're being uh, tortured, persecuted to leave their faith. And it's unfortunate some people have, but many haven't. Many haven't, uh, and they, they continue to be tortured. They're still, they're still political prisoners, and all because they have their faith in Jesus Christ. Now, the tr- charges are all trumped up as far as what it is that they did, or apparently they did, but bottom line is because they're Christians. Right now, people are being accused of all kinds of things within their companies and their corporations and in schools. Um, you know, right now that, that, you know, there is not that persecution where we're being put in prisons and burnt alive or whatever the case may be. But there is this hostility toward Christianity and it's growing more and more. And the hostility that was growing at this persecution uh, at, at the time of the Thessalonians was because of Jesus Christ. People are losing control. And there is this control that needs to take place before the end time. This control is going to control not only the people, the politics, the monetary system. It's going to control everything around the world. And this has been going on now for many years. This, this, this didn't just happen with the past administration, with the previous administration, with the current administration. This, this is not happening politically here in the United States. This is global. Most of it started over 50 years ago. It started 50 years ago and it's been infiltrated into everything within the globe. Right now there's, there's this, uh, this movement of these countries that have pretty much gotten rid of the U.S. dollar. They're not using the U.S. dollar anymore. They're using their own currency. The U.S. dollar is now at a point where it's losing its value. And so we have this one world order that's working. And so I know people are saying, well, you got to prepare. You got to do this. You got to fight. You got to. How do you, how do you fight a global movement? Maybe we think that we can have enough power to be able to do certain things, but the control that this, this lawlessness, this global entity wants to do, it, you can call it whatever you want. Some people call it the Illuminati, the Bilderberg. Some people call it the, the World Economic Forum is the current you know, situation. If you don't know anything about the World Economic Forum, I would ask you to look, look at their website. They have a website. They got some beautiful plans for the planet. Beautiful plans. WEF. And, and, you know, it's, it's, it's nice to see what it is they're doing. Read their, their, Davos, um, their, their Davos Manifesto. It's, it's great. It's, it's, it's a very good green energy, beautiful part of a beautiful thing and what they're trying to do. The problem is, is that you and I aren't included in that. They won't tell you that, but that's not for us. This is for the elite of the world. Most of the people that are involved in this, if you follow any of these guys, they'll tell you that the world is unsustainable right now. You can't sustain the world with the population that we have. So the population has to be diminished. And uh, that only includes them, not us. And, and so this, this whole thing that's, that's moving, Paul says, I want, you to be, I want you to be ready. I want you to be ready. In your outlines, once again, in Hebrews 10, I, I, I'm going back to Hebrews. Can't wait to get to that book. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and persevere 
and, and preserve their souls. Again, 1 Peter 1, Peter says, You have been grieved by various trials, so that tested uh, by the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So to conclude, Paul, James says at the very beginning of his letter to his people that he's talking to, his church, he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Paul, James says to, the, to his church, I want you to count it joy. You're going through these things because of Christ. Now, there are some things that we go through because of our own stupid choices, okay? People go through tr- struggles and tribulations, and I mean, I, just to pick one real quick, you know, somebody gets arrested for drunk driving, and they get thrown in jail $10,000 later. They're going, oh man, I can't believe I'm going through all these trials and tribulations. God is really testing me. Satan is really attacking me. No, you're driving around drunk. You don't do that. This is not because of Satan's, you know, Satan is not beating you up. God is not testing you. You did this. And we blame Satan. And Satan said, hey, I'll take all the credit. I don't care. And we have to be careful. Yes, you'll go through struggles and trials and tribulations because of what we have done. Because of what I've done, the decisions and choices I've made. I can make my own decisions and choices, but I cannot choose the consequences. Amen? People tell me this all the time. You know, God's punishing me. Why is he punishing you? Oh, because I used to drink party. No, no, those aren't punishments. That's the consequences of your sin. That's what happens when you drink. Don't you remember? People, I'm sure someone told you, those things are going to kill you. Ah, I got to die anyways. Right? Right? Am I right? You keep smoking, you're going to die. Yeah, yeah I got to die anyways. <laughs> Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials. He's talking about the actual trials for loving Jesus. For following the gospel, for preaching the gospel. Those are the trials he's talking about. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And when you are tested because of your faith, when you are tested, then it produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I cannot think of any other person in all history that was tested and tortured and humiliated and tried and trials and all this, all, all this persecution that had gone through all this and yet was able to take it on gladly other than Jesus Christ. One that did not deserve it. One that did not, it, 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 he didn't deserve it. He didn't do anything except be the Son of Man, the spotless Lamb of God. And how they tortured him. And yet on the cross, you remember what he said? Father, forgive them. For, for they don't understand what's going on here. They don't know what they're doing. They don't realize that I need to die in their place. And even the vilest sinner, even the Roman centurion at the bottom of the cross, he repented and said, truly, this was the Son of God. Have mercy upon me. Jesus died for him as well. He died for those who are his. He died for those who are His. Genuine conversion happens when you recognize that Jesus Christ died for you and it changes your life. And you are from this point forward His child. Let me ask you to stand as we prepare for our, the Lord's table.
Father, we thank you once again for this opportunity that you give us to dive into your word and, and to see the commendation that Paul has for this young church. They weren't a big church. They had no building. They had uh, little accommodations, if any. They met out in the open in people's homes, but they had a love that was abounding. They had a faith that was increasing. They had a hope that kept them going. And the greatest church is not the biggest church, the, be- the, most, the, the greatest building, the beautiful pulpit, the, the, uh, the influence of their pastor, their influence into this community. The greatest church, Lord, is one that has genuine conversion happening on a regular basis, that is increasing, abounding in their love and faith and a hope that perseveres to the end. Father, I pray that we can be a church like the people in Thessalonians. And so, Father, once again, we just we, we want to take this opportunity and this time to remember and to think back on what you had done for us on the cross. As we partake of this table with the symbols of the bread and the juice that symbolizes your blood and your body. And Father, help us to do this reverently and understand that when we do this, we take the opportunity of sinning if we do it against the body. Help us to evaluate and review ourselves and and look upon ourselves and, and to be able to come to you with a broken heart and a convicted heart and ask for forgiveness where it needs to be done to prepare our hearts, Lord, to receive. Thank you once again for this, this opportunity that you give us to remember, but not only to remember what you did on the cross, but to look forward to the day when we will share this with you. So lead us this time, we pray, in Jesus' name. And everyone says, we have what's called an open communion. Open communion means that if you come from another church that practices uh, the Lord's table or uh, Lord's Supper, some people call it the Eucharist, and uh, we have various names, but um, you don't necessarily have to be a member of our church to partake. However, we do ask that you have been uh, a believer and that you recognize that uh, Jesus Christ is Lord and uh, not, not just let any, anybody take it uh, because it is uh, pretty dangerous <laughs> to be for... Uh, it says here, whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So as I mentioned, um, it, it, it's open, but it's uh, before you and the Lord at this time. So those of you that are going to partake, just go ahead and go this way and straight to the back. You'll find the juice and the wafer in the little cup. Paul said to the people in Corinth, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Father in heaven, thank you for this wafer that represents the body of Jesus Christ. We know exactly where this bread that Jesus speaks of comes from within the Passover. It is the bread of affliction. And we know that it always represented the spotless Lamb of God, Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One. And we know that this title was given to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
And so this wafer helps us to look back at that cruel cross on how he suffered and died for us. Help us to take this today in the same reverence, with honor and glory to our Lord and Savior in Jesus. And everyone says, Amen. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death, looking backwards, until he comes, looking forward. Father in heaven, thank you again for this cup that represents the blood of Jesus Christ. The juice, the color, the consistency, it reminds us of that blood. Lord, I pray that as we take this, we remember that it was not with silver and gold that we were purchased, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ that gives us the ability to enter into the kingdom of heaven because of what you did, nothing of what we've done. Thank you once again, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Lord, we come at this point to recognize that we want to be a commendable church. We want to be a church that you would look at kindly and, and with grace and honor. And so Father, help us to, to grow together in these uh, graces that we talked about today. That we grow and continue, we pray in Jesus' name. And everyone says, Amen and Amen. All right. Stick around for some coffee and... Yes.